From APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Having good teachers is really important. It's something we all know from personal experience. And it is a fact backed up by research. But how do teachers learn to be good? That's the subject of a new book by journalist Elizabeth Green. It's called Building a Better Teacher. Green explains just how difficult teaching is by showing us what happens in the classroom of a great teacher. She also introduces us to teachers who are exploring the intricate science that underlies their craft. Elizabeth Green argues that teaching is a skill that can and should be taught more effectively than it is now. But Green told American Radio Works education correspondent Emily Hanford that there's a big obstacle to better teacher training in the United States. Green calls this the fallacy of the natural-born teacher. So I think what we assume is that teaching is a matter of personality and charisma and innate skill. That's the natural-born teacher. Uh, But the reality is that when researchers try to identify which personality traits are going to make someone that great natural-born teacher, they can't find any. And the reason is that actually teaching is not about personality. It's about skill and knowledge. And those are the things that matter much more. Um, And this myth has implications for how much we're going to train them, you know, not very much, how much we're going to support them. Well, we're going to decide that they could figure it out on their own. And then what we're going to do with the teachers who are unsuccessful, we're going to think, well, they're incapable of improvement. And so what we need to do is treat teaching like a skill with its own specialized body of knowledge and arm people with that before they ever get into the classroom. Where does this fallacy come from and why is it so strong in the United States? I don't think we're alone in assuming that it must be a natural born gift, but then we also have some structural factors that have accelerated that belief. So one example is how teachers are trained in this country. At the beginning of compulsory education, the main institution that was responsible for training teachers was called the normal school. And that was an institution whose entire purpose was teacher training. They really treated teaching as a craft that every new person at the normal school needed to learn. But when universities took over teacher education, that completely changed. And the structural conditions in the university made it harder for education schools to make teacher training their sole business. Um, As a result, researchers ended up studying what one guy called anything but pedagogy, anything but teaching. Teacher educators were not armed with a common idea about what they should be preparing teachers to do. Once teachers got into the classroom, there was no consensus in this country about what they should even be teaching students to do. So we have always treated teaching as um, a very individual, um, natural kind of act when, um, in fact, you know, it's just the opposite. So you argue that there are these these two sort of philosophies about teacher improvement, autonomy uh, and accountability. So autonomy, you just kind of explained this idea that teachers go off on their own and learn on their own. And then there's this idea of accountability as a way to help teachers improve. What is that? Accountability says, let's put in place evaluations of teachers that have real stakes. Right now, 99% of teachers who are evaluated are given a positive rating. That can't possibly be true given the learning outcomes that we're seeing. So let's instead be much tougher on the evaluation side, identify the teachers who are really great and and reward them, and then identify the teachers who are really struggling and remove them. 
Um, the idea is that if we hold teachers accountable for those results, we can identify who's good and who's destined to be good and who's bad and will never succeed. And through that alone, we can improve teaching. And then the other assumption there is that if we have this accountability model and there are consequences and threats attached to not being good, that somehow all those teachers in the middle who could just be better if they tried harder would do it, right? Right. I mean, I, I think that this points to one of the weaknesses of the accountability argument. Um, it's important to hold people accountable, but without also giving them supports, you can only expect so much. And, and that's what we've seen is that simply by holding, you know, for the last 20 years, schools more accountable does not guarantee that they're going to know what to do in order to improve. And the same applies to teachers. Um, most teachers are, as you said, in the middle. They're not born great and they're not born bad. They're just people who are trying to do something very hard in a system that makes it even harder than it needs to be. What can we do instead to imagine a system that supports teachers so that they learn over the course of their career how to be great? And they're supported in doing that, and they do not have to invent this all by, from scratch. You document the way that even though over the course of American history we have had relatively little research on what exactly the craft of teaching is and how to teach it to people, this is something that's changed. Over the past couple of decades, there has been a decent amount of work in this area. So describe that and describe what are some of the big things that have been learned about teaching in recent years. One of the key turning point moments was when a professor of education named Nate Gage realized that he had a problem in his own work as a university professor. He was a professor of education, but he didn't know how to teach. There is not a tradition of strong research about teaching. So he decided to create one. And that was a first major turning point was to have a major professor of education decide to focus on teaching, not the personality traits of teachers or the character traits, but teaching itself. And where are we in history this at this point? We're, yeah, this, we're was, a while this ago. was like the 1950s. Um, the second major turning point came in the 1970s when a successor to Nate Gage emerges named Lee Shulman. And he says, I agree with you, Nate Gage, that we should study teaching, but I think you're going about it wrong. Nate Gage was studying teachers' behaviors like he would, um, his, he and his grad students would count the number of times that teachers moved from one side of the room to another and whether they were moving from the right to the left or the left to the right. Lee Shulman said, let's study what teachers are thinking about. Let's study the knowledge that they bring to the table. And that was an important addition to the field to start to recognize that teachers are making an incredible number of decisions per lesson. And then from there, what's happened is we've seen researchers bring these two sides together and say there's practices that teachers do, sort of behaviors that um, lead students to learn, things like figure out how to manage a discussion, monitor students while they're working independently, um, diagnose students' errors and the sources of those errors. And then there's also knowledge that teachers bring to the table. So research really has made a lot of progress, even against the grain of um, the tradition of not studying teaching. Uh, you take a trip uh, to Japan, and you also describe people who are profiling in the book took a trip to Japan. And they're fascinated, these American teachers and researchers are fascinated by what they see inside classrooms in Japan. And then when they ask the Japanese, how did they learn to teach this way? They say, well, we learned it from you. 
Right. Yeah. So there, this big international study of classrooms comparing Japan and the U.S. found that American math reforms were more present in Japanese classrooms than in U.S. classrooms. Um, I think what happened is that we're a great producer of ideas in this country, but we're a terrible implementer of great ideas. Whereas the Japanese had a system already built in that respected teaching as a craft and had ways to help teachers learn to do it together. We have a culture of privacy around the classroom. Japan treats the classroom as a public good. So Teachers teach public lessons in Japan in front of their colleagues. In some cases, it's as many as a thousand teachers who come from all over the country to watch a teacher teach. And then after that, watching the teacher, they all discuss what they saw together. And this turns out to be an incredible mechanism for spreading great ideas. Um, another feature is that Japan, in Japan, teachers have more time to study their own teaching and to go watch each other. They have an average of only 600 hours a year that they spend teaching their students, whereas in the U.S. it's almost double that. It's 1,000 hours. So that extra 400 hours... Japanese teachers can use to learn. What are some of the things that are happening inside classrooms in Japan that the American researchers and teachers were so amazed by that seems so different from what was at, what was and is actually happening in American classrooms? One is embracing the idea that Teachers need to direct students, but students also need to make sense of the ideas that they're going to learn. This requires more skill on the part of the teacher, but it also leads to higher retention of knowledge on the part of students. And it's really quite fun as well. I, I found myself learning things that I hadn't ever learned about numbers and shapes and uh, the way math can help us represent the world. Teachers have a say in what's in the textbook. They revise the course of study, their national standards every 10 years with the help of teachers. All of these mechanisms allow them to have very rich experiences every single day in a classroom. We have such a tradition of local control, and we don't have a common curriculum, um, and we don't have some of the features of the system that you, you describe in, in Japan, yes. but in particular, going back to this idea of commonality, that we, ha we lack commonality. So now we have this thing called the Common Core Standards. They're, it's not a curriculum. Uh, but right. it's closer to something common than we've ever had before. How significant is Common Core when it comes to the question of how we can improve teacher training? And what are the researchers that you talk to um, think about the role that Common Core has to play here? I, I think you're absolutely right. The importance of commonness cannot be underestimated. That is a key backbone that makes everything else possible in countries like Japan and Finland even. And so the Common Core really is seen as an opportunity by the people I write about in this book. It alone will not be enough. Um, if the Common Core exists without the structures to help teachers unite around it and learn together about how to teach kids to do the skills and knowledge that are outlined in the Common Core math and English standards, then it could be just another failed reform attempt in our long history of failed education reform in this country. What needs to happen next to help us make our way forward in terms of helping teachers be better rather than get in the way? We need to have 
better curriculum materials. I think that's a huge one. So the one of the authors of the Common Core Math Standards um, told me a funny story about his granddaughter. She's in public school where she was given a new Common Core Math worksheet. And she says, oh, well, my grandfather wrote that worksheet because he's the author of the Common Core. And of course, the teacher laughed at her because she didn't realize who her grandfather was. But then when his granddaughter brought the worksheet home, the author of the Common Core Standards also laughed because he said, you know, just because I wrote the standards doesn't mean I wrote the worksheet. And in fact, I wouldn't endorse this worksheet. That's the story for so many of the textbooks and worksheets that have come out with the name Common Core written on them that don't actually align. Um, So again, teachers could be left alone to build their own classroom materials um, because we haven't figured out how to make those strong and common. So what do we do in this country to help all those teachers out there be better and help the thousands that enter the profession every year start better? I think the first question we have to ask is, what are the uh, secret invisible features of successful networks of public schools in this country that are doing a different kind of job that treat teaching as a craft. They all have some basic infrastructure pieces. And what are they and how can we get those? They're not that complicated. They have time for teachers to work together and learn together. They have common materials that teachers can share so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. And they have, you know, they do have assessments that teachers can use to learn from. And I think they have training. These are the features we need. Now let's get to work and look at all of the many different innovative players who are on the ground creating ways to make that possible in the U.S. system. Um, I think it's possible. We just have to focus on the right levers for change. That was author Elizabeth Green speaking with education correspondent Emily Hanford. Green's new book is called Building a Better Teacher. A note of disclosure, Green was awarded a fellowship by the Spencer Foundation, which also helps support American Radio Works but does not influence our coverage. You can find more podcasts about education at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. And while you're there, let us know what you think of our coverage and browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. To learn about the latest from American Radio Works, you can follow us on Twitter at AMRadioWorks, and you can like us on Facebook at American.RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works also comes from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and Lumina Foundation. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Smith. This is APM, American Public Media.